This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. New polling reveals Canadians are more worried about racism and the hate posted online than actually protecting freedom of speech in this country. We'll talk about why this is nonsensical and quite dangerous. The UK variant's here, but what happens if it takes hold? We'll talk to a mathematical epidemiologist, yes, there are courses for that, who warns we could be looking at a, quote, disaster by end of March. And tens of thousands take to Russia's street, determined to oust Putin. What is the significance of this? Let's get talking. So we're here to announce our first uh, presumptive positive case of novel coronavirus uh, that uh, we were just uh, made aware of earlier today. And I'd like to say that in this process, you're going to hear from various representatives at the table here, including from the minister. And as I said yesterday, the system we had hoped would work as it is, and it did. Right through the whole process, you're going to hear evidence that people did what they're supposed to do. They're carrying out what they are doing, and they're going to follow up on that. As a result, uh, the risk to Ontarians is still low. Oh, yes, that was then and this is now. And one year later, what have we learned? Well, that all our experts were wrong and they still can't get it right. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, January 25th. Holy, this month is going fast. Albeit, it seems like we kind of repeat the same day every day. Just change the day. But same scene, you know. Nonetheless, it is the day before we get a big snowfall that also won't bother us a bit. Because most of us are locked into our households. I guess the one benefit of a lockdown is that you don't have to worry about how you're going to get to work tomorrow. So consider yourself warned. We're supposed to get lots of snow snow, and um, at least the kitties will be happy. So I guess we'll take that. We'll take the good when we can. But yes, here we are on the anniversary when COVID-19 would arrive in this country. You've been hearing about this. Of course, our lives uh, didn't change a bit because those in charge did nothing. Remember? I mean, I remember that press conference. I remember it was a Saturday afternoon, late, right before the dinner hour newscast. And we were meeting this Dr. Williams, Dr. Yaffe, and Dr. Davila, who we now know, along with these other so-called experts. And um, during those days, I mean, they were boasting, we've done everything right with these first two cases. And then, of course, the talking point quickly changed to, this is low risk, and we are prepared. And now we know it's all a lie. We should have been prepared. We had months to prepare, and yet here we are one year later and still upside down backwards because we were never prepared and we are still waiting too long. And I think it's because a lot of those who are in charge had zero business being in charge. And maybe that's why they don't actually seem to take charge. And this thing didn't get a lot of attention, but I did. I have been wanting to talk about it. I was reading it over the weekend, but... It explains, I think, why we are backwards in, in the position we are in. There was an internal audit done, and uh, Blacklock's reporting, who we'll talk with a little bit later, um, released it a couple of weeks back, talking about public health of Canada. And during the time of COVID, certainly, you know, leading up to it, uh, Public Health Canada had no actual experts when 
COVID kit. No one. And that's because the Trudeau government had gotten rid of most of the scientists that they would boast about and replaced them with a bunch of suits, you know, civil servants who had zero health expertise. And not only did they miss the early warnings of the threat, but they shrugged it off instead of actually sending a warning up the chain of command. And sure, you can park some of the blame at Stephen Harper's feet. Fair enough. I mean, his government was, I guess, and it is blame for starting the dumbing down of Health Canada, but the Trudeau government did nothing to stop that or fix it. I mean, they droned on for years and years and years about evidence-based policy and believing in science, and yet four years in, they did nothing to beef up the agency. Nothing. They went the opposite way and shut down the world-renowned pandemic warning system, which is a disaster. They got rid of doctors and epidemiologists in favor of people who could write nifty talking points, but who had no idea what they were talking about. Because as you read in the audit, the vital health information had to be dumbed down so much before moving up the chain of command because the suits had absolutely no medical or science in their background. And, you know, here we had months watching this virus of ravage Wuhan, and the agency was still caught flat-footed. So what they didn't do, they didn't check for PPE supplies. They didn't put any of the lessons we were told that we had learned with SARS into action. No, no, during those times when they should have been doing that, they were scrambling to hire uh, outside experts who should have already been on the job. How can you have a health department when you have no doctors and no epidemiologists? And the few scientists they had on staff, the ones who issued warnings in December saying, hi, over here, you see that thing coming in uh, Wuhan? That's bad. Oh, yeah, that was totally ignored. According to the report, they offered a crash court, a course to teach the suits the basics of science on the fly. And guess what? The suits said, no, thanks, we're good. They took a pass. And the report reveals Dr. Tam was often given wrong or not enough information, which I think goes a long way in explaining why she got so much of her advice wrong, whether it was on masks, which she told us not to wear, border restrictions, which <laughs> they're still not shut, pretty much everything. I think it also explains why the top suits of Health Canada have since quit, got out of Dodge drop the uh, fire hose while the house is on fire. And this is just what we have been told. I mean, there are now two investigations underway as to why this government got caught so flat-footed, and there will be so much blame to go around, no question about it. But a lot of the big decisions that needed to be made early had to be done at the federal levels, and the liberals were not fast. And they've also been very slow in handing over internal documents for the investigation. And that's why there's probably more that we have yet to find out. My big question is, how is it one year into this thing? Why are we still getting caught so flat-footed? We've got new variants, these new variants threatening to take hold in our country. And just now, the Trudeau government's looking into travel restrictions and maybe changing quarantine rules? I mean, that should have been done months ago. Hello? We've got variants threatening to take hold of the country from UK, South Africa, and Brazil. And we're just changing things now? Maybe? Nah, sorry. I mean, we're still waiting for aggressive rapid testing. Promise back in March. We're still not doing aggressive tracing. 
And the vaccine rollout that we are told is on schedule is proving disastrous with delays that have put Canada back in the line with shipments of Pfizer screeching to a halt this week. And from there, I don't know what's going to happen. Who knows? We're on their time, not them on our time. And you look to Israel, which has done about 40% of its population, and they stated the only way to achieve what they have is if you know what your supply is, when you're getting it, if it's a steady supply. Well, we don't even know when we're getting our next delivery because Pfizer hasn't just stopped this week's dosing, but they've cut our next shipments by almost 80%. Why? What did we do? What's in that contract? That's what I would like to know. Why is every other country getting vaccines, but we're not? And the U.S. today, Mr. Joe Biden announcing that they are ramping up to give 1.5 million doses a day. He wants, I think in his 100, 100 days, he wants 100 million people vaccinated. They will, likely. But, uh, you know, we're just, we're just hoping we get maybe a delivery, like a box. Can we just get a couple? I mean, you would think with all these growing threats that this would be priority number one. And yet, over the weekend, we learned that the Trudeau government has spent the last week gearing up for an election, holding virtual readiness lessons with meetings, with caucus ridings and uh, campaign managers over the last few days. You know, he keeps telling us, Mr. Trudeau, that he doesn't want an election. Well, why is he preparing for one? Well, my guess is so that he can hold one before we find out the rest of this government screw-ups, including the real answer on why we aren't getting access to his really great, big vaccine portfolio. Anyway, we got these lockdown measures. They're going to be sticking around for at least another two weeks, which no one I should put much stock into because Dr. Williams has said himself, cases won't, uh, until we get cases under 1,000, they can't lift restrictions at all. So I don't know, is that like a couple of weeks, couple of months, three months? Like, do we want to give businesses any information at all? I mean, how long are we talking? No one's saying. So we got that extension today. But coming up next, we'll talk to the doctor because um, we've got these two homes in Barrie, both hit by the potent UK variant of the virus. And by the way, apparently it is not racist to call it the South African, Brazil, or UK variant. But it is if you call it anything else using the name China. All right, great to have you here on this Monday. A study on free speech and racism strikes me as a downright scary. There's a new poll commissioned by Canadian Race Relations Foundation. This is a crown corporation, and it was conducted by Abacus Data. It asked 2,000 Canadians, quote, when it comes to regulating hate speech online, which of the following comes closest to your view? They were given two options. 69% chose this answer, quote, I worry more about the impact of hate speech and racism on people it harms and the impact of society overall than on limits to people's freedom of speech or protecting privacy. Another 60% of respondents said the Canadian government should be doing more to prevent the spread of hateful and racist content online. On first glimpse, I get it. People want this stuff stamped out, but I find uh, these findings alarming. And it comes at a time when the Trudeau government's about to table regulations for social media. I think the question is, you know, do we really want the government deciding what is free speech and what is and isn't okay? Jim Turk is the director, Center for Free Expression, Faculty of Communications and Design at Ryerson University. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you, Alex. Nice to be here. What was your reaction? I know what my reaction was when I read this study. What was yours? 
Well, it was similar to yours. I don't find it surprising that 69% of people would answer in that way. Um, there's a lot of terrible stuff that goes on through social media, on the Internet, a lot of disinformation, trolling, and so forth. So that that's troubling is not surprising. And also, I don't think most people understand what hate speech laws restrict in Canada. That is, there's a lot of hateful expression uh, that mm-hmm. many of us don't like, but it's not illegal. So um, <clears throat> our courts set a very high bar before something can be treated as criminal hate speech. So, I mean, all that said, it's not surprising that people are troubled by a lot of the bad things. But at the, the same people embrace social media for all the wonderful things it does. I spent uh, uh, half an hour talking to my grandchildren in, in Europe today that was only possible uh, because of FaceTime, uh, everybody uh, gets to be a publisher, unlike uh, in the past when you could publish as long as you owned a newspaper. Uh, mm-hmm. We have the opportunity to connect uh, in this difficult pandemic. Uh, and then we have to remember, too, there's lots of uh, dissidents in places like Belarus and Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia who are able to speak out and have a voice only because of the very characteristics of social media that also allow trolling and disinformation. Uh, Black Lives Matter wouldn't be surviving as it was. The Me Too movement wouldn't have had the impact without social media. So it's a complicated, complicated issue. How do we uh, how do we um, protect all the good things that cause billions of people worldwide to use social media while at the same time wanting to stamp out the bad things that are caused by those same uh, by the same structure? I mean, to your point, I think, yes, when you hear about hate speech and racism, who would be for it? Of course, people are going to be against it, but we do have hate laws on the books um, to protect us from it. My concern, and I have many, is that I'm hearing more and more, certainly from younger generations, that they're okay with soft censorship, to which I was like, I don't even know what that is. What's soft censorship? Well, I mean, there's censor. Unfortunately, there's only one kind of censorship, and that is... Yeah, that means I'm I'm going to get banned and you're not. Yeah, silencing. And, you know, long ago, we recognized the major importance of freedom of expression. That's what's recognized by our courts Mm -hmm. so that we can have a democratic society in which there is an unlimited right to discuss what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. And even though courts, I mean, even though uh, our governments can pass laws in democracy, we always have the right. We have to comply with the laws, but we always have the right to organize, to challenge them, to protest against them, to express our views. Um, And so insofar as we allow people to restrict free expression, we get in danger of undermining the very basis of our democracy, which is why we rarely use – I mean, there are limits to freedom of expression in every society. We have them in Canada. Uh, You can't – Threat imminent violence, threaten imminent violence. You can't defame people. You can't engage in perjury. Uh, so there are limits, but they're very specific limits and a very high bar before they're met. Otherwise, uh, my goodness, there's lots of things you may say or I may say mm-hmm. that you don't like or others don't like mm-hmm. and would say, geez, I wish you didn't have to listen to that guy say that stuff. Um, 
And and, uh, the, and, the, and the freedom for you to turn your radio station off or your TV channel or social media, that is there. And so, right, you're right. What is offensive to you may not be offensive to me and vice versa. And, and we know that the Trudeau government is moving forward with some kind of regulation for the social media companies. Um, I mean, the last thing we want is the Trudeau government or any government, for that matter, uh, deciding what is and isn't okay, um, you know, as far as having opinions. That day well, is the yeah. day I think we've lost our country. But private companies can uh, act as they will. But again, we, we get into this murky area of, you know, Donald Trump has to be banned, but we'll allow the Ayatollah Khomeini, who would love to well, see the annihilation of Jews. He's okay. I mean, the problem is that uh, newspapers and other private entities have always decided what they're going to publish, what they're going to give a, a bullhorn to, and what they're going to deny it to. Uh, the charter doesn't limit the right of private corporations from choosing to give voice to whom they want and denying voice to others. The problem, though, is with social media, instead, you know, the Toronto Star may have let some people publish and not others, and the Toronto Sun yet different people, and you could buy one paper or the other. Now we get the majority of our content as a mm -hmm. society from social media. So when they make a decision to silence someone, it has a huge impact. And so that's the problem we're wrestling with. Um, so they're, they're using the means by which people's voices are heard and amplified. Uh, but I don't, want, I don't want what can be discussed in the public square decided by private, for-profit corporations, and in particular ones whose business model causes much of the behavior that people dislike. That is, Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms make their money by attracting us to their site and keeping our eyes on their site. And they mm -hmm. do that by uh, valuing and encouraging the kind of behavior that draws people, and that's outrage and things that anger them or excite them. It's not nuance. It's not uh, careful study and discussion. It's dramatic stuff. So we're drawn to their site for the very, you know, Donald Trump made more money for Twitter than probably any other person on the earth. So their decision to cut him off was, I'm sure, a very hard one for them to make. Uh, yeah, I don't think Biden's uh, bringing in the big bucks like uh, Mr. Mr. Trump uh, did. But just before no, I let you and, go, Professor. Yeah. And, be, and precisely because he isn't a guy like Mr. Trump, right? He yeah. is more quiet and subdued. Uh, but there's a practical problem, too, Alex. Uh, you know, there are 60 billion messages sent every day using Facebook, Messenger and WhatsApp. 95 million po uh, photos uploaded to Instagram every day. Uh, how do you, even if they want to regulate it, how do you consistently regulate that volume of stuff? It's impossible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which answers so, my next question. How on earth and where do they start? And there you go. Well, that, I mean, that's the problem. Uh, Facebook is, is really keen to set up its own self-regulation. It has an oversight board. It has some eminent people serving on it because it's trying to take the heat off uh, the outrage over a lot of the bad stuff that's done on Facebook. So that, you know, the problem is really twofold. It's, it's partly uh, the design of these sites, as I was saying. They're designed to draw people and what draws and to reward the kind of behavior that draws people, which is ex extreme hyperbolic speech and that kind of stuff. But the problem is also a human problem. Uh, I just was reading a, a survey uh, that was just done that showed uh, looked at what information people share from fa uh, from social media sites. 
And they're much more likely to share disinformation, false information, than well-justified information. So it's partly a human problem as well. So these right. platforms put it all out there. But we actually circulate more of the bad stuff than we do the good stuff. Um, yeah. Anyway, so what to do about it? Well, I, I mean, I think there are several things to be done. First of all, governments can rightly require social media platforms to take down illegal expression. So threats of violence, um, uh, genuine hate speech, that, with, that is hate speech that's illegal. Um, mm-hmm. There's you know, a variety of things. So they should have to take down the illegal speech. That's not a problem. Uh, then there are other solutions being suggested, uh, no one of which is a silver bullet. Uh, we can look at antitrust legislation. I mean, rarely in human history have there have been corporations as big and powerful as mm-hmm. Facebook and yeah. Google um, and so we can look at antitrust and do we do we start breaking that up a little bit? We can also consider regulating as a public utility in the same way we regulate electricity and water and other things that are necessary for the public good. It's pretty clear these social media sites are the public square where a lot of discourse is going to take on take place. How can it be regulated not in the way of censorship to make but to make sure that it operates fairly? Uh, and then we have to do more education of the public so people are better able to tell disinformation and propaganda from uh, authentic, factual information. And I guess the final thing I would say we need to do is we need to find a way to provide more support for genuine content-creating media. The social media platforms create no content. They simply take whatever you broadcast or what the Toronto Star or the Vancouver Sun or others, uh, and put it out there and make money from doing that. Uh, the result of that has been they're starving every radio station, TV station, newspaper in the world for revenue. I mean, between yeah. 70 and 85% of all ad dollars now go to social media. And so yeah. the number I... of journalists that have been laid off, the radio stations that have closed as a result is quite frightening. So we need to find ways of publicly providing better support for uh, that content-creating media on which we traditionally have relied that is being undermined by the social media platforms. Well, it's not a problem that's going to be sorted overnight, so I hope that people kind of careful what they wish for, you know. Um, on, my, on that note, Professor, I'll have you on again because it is an issue that is not going away, and I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. That is Professor Jim Turk, who is with Ryerson University. So there you go. Uh, careful what you wish for. You might not like what comes on the other side. All righty, good to have you on this busy Monday. So how big of a threat are these new COVID variants, and how long will it take them to become established? I was reading actually a pretty sobering um, article over the weekend, which warns about the UK variant, which uh, is what is spreading through a couple of Barry seniors' homes, sickening over 165 people, including staff and residents, and over 30 people have now died. It's now reported to hit a second home, and it's now being sparked in uh, Kingston. And if you read about the variant, it spreads about 40 to 80 percent faster and is said to be more deadly. And when you see where we are now with the normal COVID-19 strain and how slow our experts seem to be to move on anything, can we actually stop this strain before it takes grip? And uh, experts say... Not with these measures. I want to bring in Dr. Ari Alicia, who is a mathematical epidemiologist and who uh, joins us from South Africa. So I appreciate your taking the time. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. 
it was your article that I actually read. You put up all these very uh, intricate modeling graphs, and what struck me was how staggering you know it goes up by the end of February into March. If we don't actually get our act together when it comes to the UK variant, let's say, or these other threats, um, you, you the words used are disaster. Yes, um, and, and it's the right thing to say. Uh, but before before I start, I would just like to uh, make a few. Uh, clarification. So these variants are not strains. So we we prefer to call them variants. Um, okay. They are they are quite different. So and and um, also we would not want to kind of call them the UK strain, the UK variant or the South African variant. So kind of avoiding um, attaching these uh, variants to a certain country uh, because of the stereotypes that may come with it. So because we and also we are not actually sure where these variants uh, started from, uh, truly. But they, they are first identified in, in the, like the B117 was first identified in the UK, and the 501V2 was first identified in, in South Africa. So that's just the, the, the simple clarification that I, I would like to make. So it's a big threat, it's a disaster, just as we've described it. Uh, because, as you rightly said, it, it can it has a higher transmissibility of uh, more than fifty percent. So, what that means is that any time you you come into contact with someone who is infected, you have a fifty percent chance higher than the, the normal COVID variants that we have. You have a higher chance, fifty percent, or at least fifty percent, of getting infected. So, what that means is that. Uh, a lot of people are going to get infected, and if that happens, eventually the the fatality will be quite high. So right now we have 2,500, 2,600 cases. We seem to somewhat be going in the right direction, but we've also been locked down for weeks now. Um, you know, I think you know what we've got in place as far as uh, restrictions. We don't have lockdowns as far as traveling. You can still travel in this country. We don't have strong quarantine rules. How do we get ahead of this thing? Like, what would it take for these variants to take hold? Good, thank you. Good question, Alex. So, yeah, the current the thing we are currently uh, doing now in most of the provinces in in Canada are actually working. So, the restrictions, the the simple basic uh, social distancing or physical distancing um, uh, measures are working. And you can see that in the, in the number of cases, and the number of cases are declining in most of the, the provinces, if not all of all of them. So, but our, what our modeling studies show is that if we keep doing uh, what we are doing now without any changes, then although the variant may take a little time, it may slow down in the beginning, but eventually mm. it will be established and things will get out of hands quickly. So the, your question about how how quick it can get hold, that would uh, be determined by the number of imported cases at the beginning. So how many people are coming in with this uh, variants, and how well are they mixing with the local population? So if people keep traveling in, coming in with these variants, and they are not properly quarantined, and they can mix freely, then it will kick off really quickly. Right. So if but if people are quarantined 
and travels are regulated, probably restricted to essential travels only, then you are reducing the number of seeding, uh, the number of seeds of infection at the onset. So it will give him, it will buy time, um, at least, so that the vaccines uh, can and can have uh, more time to, you know, get to more people. Yeah. So well, the problem is, and let me just step in here, doctor. I mean, we we know the vaccines aren't going to be here in time in Canada. Um, the first cases came in from a paramedic and a doctor. Um, they didn't report it. We have very weak quarantine laws. We aren't rapid testing and we aren't stopping international travel. What would your message be to the levels of government, uh, the federal government? What should they be doing and when? Uh, we just don't seem to be taking it seriously enough and it looks like we're going to get caught flat-footed again. Yeah, thank you. So uh, what we should be doing now is to uh, step up surveillance. So one can restrict travel to essential travels alone. So non-essential travels should be, uh, be cancelled if possible so that it will limit the number of people that are coming in so the quarantine also should be uh, made mandatory. I think they are they are already mandatory, but they should be well supervised, so that anyone who is coming in will uh, will be able to quarantine for a few days, maybe 14 days or, or thereabout, so that they won't mix uh, with uh, with the population. And the current social distancing measures that are currently in place, although they are not palatable, but they 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 actually working. Because if you look at South Africa, for instance, despite the fact that this uh, variant spread like wildfire after the uh, restrictions were implemented, you can actually see that it seems the cases are now coming down. So restrictions are actually work. They work, but, you know, the lockdown, uh, you know, looks like we're not getting out of it anytime soon. People can't live like this forever. And my concern, and I think a lot of other people are, are justly concerned, that those in charge are not acting quickly enough. And my my greatest concern is that this variant, be it Brazil, South Africa, UK, wherever it's coming from, is going to get hold and really start to ravage an already ravaged healthcare system. Yeah, let's hope uh, those who can, who are making decisions, will, will listen and, and you know, uh, step up measures uh, to, to survey, to improve surveillance and, and make sure that um, even... Those who are coming in, we have few people coming in with the variants. They will be identified and isolated as soon as possible. Doctor, I appreciate your time. It's very late, obviously, in your uh, side of the world, but I appreciate you uh, chatting with us tonight. Thank you so much, Alex. It's a, a pleasure. That is Dr. R.A. Elisha joining us uh, from South Africa. And again, the big warning, if we don't get ahead of this thing, is this could go skyrocketing, starting by... I guess, end of March. Stay tuned. Putin changed the constitution and you can't really have any kind of public protest in Russia anymore. So millions of people out in the streets in Russia right now and hundreds of them, hundreds getting arrested just for, you know, pretty much protesting and speaking up their opinion about Putin. And they obviously want him out. So think about it. Like you want Trump out of the office. People can't do anything to get Putin out of the office and pretty much... There's no human rights. Putin is not a president. He's a mafia guy. If you want to know what bravery sounds like, that's what it sounds like coming from the streets of Russia and across the entire country this weekend. And I don't know if you saw it, but the image is showing tens of thousands of protesters uh, taking to the streets and demanding the release of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. 
there were about 4,000 people arrested in some pretty severe you know, police brutality acts that just played out all over the place. And yet all these protesters are saying more. We need more protests next weekend. And um, we saw these protests thanks to videos posted all over social media uh, by the protesters whose voices were, you know, censored as fast as the Russian government could trying to get rid of the content. But of course, not before 200 million people saw the views and passed them around. Marcus Kolga is a leading Canadian expert on Russia and Central and Eastern European issues and also is with the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me on, Alex. So Alexei Navalny is behind bars, retained last week. He called for supporters to take to the streets, and, and boy, did they ever show up. I mean, it, it, to see those images was quite something. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was really incredible watching these people, I mean, the, the, especially the images out of the far east of, of Russia, you know, where the out of Siberia, where it was like minus 50 degrees. And, you know, there's this ice fog that's everywhere. And these people mm-hmm. are, you know, despite these freezing temperatures, are out on the street marching for democracy, freedom and against corruption. They're, they're calling for change and supporting, uh, you know, the, this brave, brave activist, Alexei Navalny, as, as you mentioned, you know, returned to Russia despite the certainty of being arrested, and he is now uh, in custody, maybe for the next decade, um, for all we know at this point. Um, and it's just moving to see people just take to the streets in, in support of democracy. It's such a powerful image. Is it in your mind, are we seeing the start of an overthrow? Will Putin not allow that? Where do you see this going? Or do you, do you get the sense that Navalny will somehow eat a poisonous uh, something in, in jail? Well, look, I mean, if uh, something happens to Alexei Navalny, and, and let's not forget, last, yeah. uh, last week he put out a statement saying, I am mentally stable, my heartbeat is fine, I'm not going to sharpen a spoon and slit my throat with it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just don't see the, the, you know, any sort of positive uh, outcome for Putin if he were to allow uh, Alexei Navalny to mysteriously fall out a third floor window. You know, like it's just it doesn't make any sense politically, strategically. But you never know mm-hmm. with this government. They've, they've done this before with other opposition leaders. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think where what Putin is looking at right now is probably some sort of a jail term. But I'm not sure it matters. You know, going back to your question, you know, people are, you know, are engaged. They're motivated right now to go out onto the streets. And and how this ends is really anyone's guess. You know, the fact that people are turning out in the dead of winter in the, you know, nearly 200,000 of them across Russia, um, you know, understanding that the riot police were out there, that they were going to risk arrest. This is a change. We haven't seen this before. Um, there were some mm-hmm. pretty big um, protests in 2012, um, not as serious as this. And so seeing this, you know, if the, if the people do take the streets again this weekend, I think mm-hmm. that we're going to see a sustained movement. And, uh, and I'm sure that Putin is going to be very, he's already very nervous. And if they take the streets again next weekend, he's going to be even more nervous about his, uh, his position. Yeah, and when uh, a guy like Putin gets nervous, he also gets um, probably a little bit desperate and probably would tell his police officers to uh, get a whole lot tougher. I mean, they detained 4,000 people. And it's not like here in Canada where they read you your rights. I mean, it's a totally different story there. 4,000 people are taken down and who knows what happens. But uh, I suspect then that he will um, become a whole lot more aggressive in silencing these voices. 
Yeah, you're you're probably right. I mean, what we saw on uh, Saturday was pretty brutal in and of itself. You know, there was a this video that you've, you've probably seen. It's, it's received hundreds of thousands of views of a 54-year-old woman at the side of the street. Um, you know, this police officer just takes a running leap and kicks her down to the ground, and you can hear yeah. her head hit the pavement. Um, there's yeah. another video that's making the rounds of a 10-year-old child who's being pulled around and whipped around by a police officer and fall, you know, yelling for help and, and thrown to the ground. You know, these are the scenes, and there was a, a lot of violence. I think there, was, there were at least 80 people who were taken to hospital with various wounds, and I, I'm afraid you're right. Uh, you know, I, I think that the violence could escalate, although, you know, Vladimir Putin is aware that, you know, the, the more violence there is, you know, I think the, the louder the protest may become in the current situation. You know, five years ago, maybe the violence would have stopped the protest. I'm not sure that escalating the level of aggression right now on the part of the authorities is going to help uh, quell the situation. But you never know how Putin will react. Yeah, I mean, we've seen these sustained um, kinds of protests. We saw them in Iran, uh, certainly. I mean, they still go on to this day with people begging, um, you know, on social media for help. Um, We've seen protests like uh, in Venezuela take on a sustained you know, chipping away. I mean, we saw them in the Middle East with the Arab Spring in that. So they, they can take on a life of their own. Uh, but given Russia, you know, geopolitically continuing to kind of pull itself into, you know, more and more power, um, you know, th- there does seem to be, unless I'm mistaken, some real opposition that threatens Mr. Putin. Is that is this the first time of a real threat to his leadership? Uh, well, like I said, 2012, there were some protests. They were pretty big. Um, you know, there was a bit of violence there. Um, they were led then by Boris Nemtsov, who was a gregarious uh, Democrat, very pro-Western uh, sort of reformer. And, and he was seen as the, as the next great hope for, for Russia. Uh, he galvanized the opposition behind him. But um, he grew so powerful that in 2015, yeah. uh, in February, he was, um, he was shot eight times in the back just outside of the Kremlin. And so since then, we haven't seen anything like this. Um, This is really the first time where, you know, Russians have really been motivated to to take the streets. And this could be, you know, motivated. I mean, earlier this summer, there were some pretty big protests actually out in in Siberia. Uh, And uh, of course, we've been, I'm sure that most Russians have been watching what's happening in Belarus since August. Mm -hmm. Um, People, Mm -hmm. you know, those brave, brave Belarusian people have been taking the streets every single weekend, despite threats of very harsh violence. You know, yeah. tens of thousands have been injured, tortured. It's it's brutal what's happening there. And I think when they see that, I think that there's there's a hope for change in Russia. Um, you know, they want democracy. They want freedom. They don't want this corrupt government. And, uh, right. and I think they've had enough. Yeah. And, and certainly one of uh, the gentleman off the top of the uh, segment, uh, as he said, you know, Americans wanted Trump out. Well, we want this guy out because he is corrupt, you know. Uh, just quickly before I let you go, Marcus, um, will this weekend, uh, if the amount of protests are bigger um, and grander, will this start to tell the story? I think so. Um, you know, I don't even think that they need to be any bigger. If they are sustained yeah. around the same level, I think that's an indication that uh, there's something happening. And the one thing I want to add is that, you know, Canada came out of the gates pretty quickly to condemn uh, yeah. Navalny's arrest and has condemned the, the crackdown. We need to do a lot more. We need to place right. sanctions. Navalny put out a list of, 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 of about 10 uh, individuals, officials in the Putin regime that need to be sanctioned. We need to take a look at this seriously. We need to work with our allies, especially with Joe Biden, because Joe Biden yeah. is going to be taking action. We need to work with them to help defend these human rights activists.
Fascinating times. All right, Marcus, always appreciate your insight, and I thank you. Anytime, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Marcus Kolga joining us here. So we will watch because, honestly, the images were just uh, pretty stunning given uh, the context of what we're dealing with. All right, when we come back, vaccines aren't shipping, the UK variants here, and those in charge, well, what are they doing? Oh, they're thinking about border and quarantine rules. That's a really good idea after a whole year. Why are they waiting? We will talk about that in just a minute. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.